study of this passage and to conclude our study on this subject of the Christian conscience. Um, so let's read one more time these first seven verses of Romans 13. Uh, this is the very word of God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. But tonight we continue thinking about the Bible's teaching concerning this important part of who we are. This is an important part of who you are as a person. It's this aspect of your soul called the conscience. We've seen that the conscience is the inner courtroom of the soul established by God in which a person judges himself. We've seen that it's a precious gift from God. And when our consciences are working rightly... They help us to experience in our souls the judgment of God before we get to the last day so that we can repent now, so that we can turn to Jesus now and have peace with God now. And even after we come to Christ, our consciences are a guide and a counselor. Our consciences help us choose the right and avoid the wrong. And our consciences know, help us know when we've dishonored God. This morning, we saw that our consciences, just like the rest of who we are as body and soul, our consciences were affected by the fall. Sin has broken the human conscience, and this brokenness can show itself in various malfunctions. Um, this morning, we saw four. I'll just list them. The brokenness of conscience is evident when it preaches false laws. The brokenness of conscience is evident when its memory is distorted. The brokenness of conscience is evident when it fails to prosecute. And the brokenness of conscience is evident when it falsely prosecutes. Now we're going to pick up. I want to mention two more malfunctions of the conscience. And the fifth is this. The brokenness of conscience is evident when it falsely defends. When it falsely defends. This is a surefire way of knowing that your conscience is not fulfilling its God-given purpose. If your conscience is excusing you. If your conscience is defending you and telling you that you are okay even though you've sinned. And even though you refuse to repent. It's malfunctioning. 
So is that anyone here tonight? Romans 2.15, Paul speaks of the inner thoughts of a man excusing his wicked attitudes, his works, and his actions. A conscience is supposed to hold our life up to the standard of God's moral law and deliver a verdict. A verdict of guilty, and that's why we need Jesus. But sometimes a broken conscience will acknowledge that you've done evil and then excuse you. Pardon you. Make you feel okay about your sins on false grounds. For example, sometimes a broken conscience will excuse you on the basis of comparison. Oh sure, you've sinned, but you're not as bad as so and so down the road. Oh yeah, you've messed up, but you're not like that co-worker of yours. In fact, when you compare yourself to the people around you, uh, your fellow family members, for example, or others, you're quite upright. You're quite moral. And so even though you've sinned against a holy God, your conscience begins to excuse your sins on the basis of comparison. Why is that a problem? Well, it's a problem because on the day of judgment, there will be no judgment based on comparison. God does not grade on a curve. The inner courtroom of your soul, when functioning rightly, should mirror the courtroom of heaven. And in that courtroom, even if you are the most moral person out of a million, if you've sinned against an infinitely holy and good God, that crime deserves an infinite punishment. Moreover, every sin springs from the heart. You cannot claim that you're worthy of a place in heaven while you have a heart that is still wicked and producing sin. Even if your heart is somehow less corrupt than that person's heart. Even if you're somehow less broken than that person over there. Because Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So a conscience that excuses sin, a conscience that seeks to defend you and explain away your sin, is a malfunctioning conscience. Sometimes a conscience will try and excuse you on the basis of good works. Yes, you sinned. Yes, you said that thing and you shouldn't have said it. You you treated that person badly and you shouldn't have done it. But look at all the good things you've done. Look at all the other people you've helped. Look at how you faithfully attended church. Remember when you gave that special donation to that missionary? Remember when you helped that family at Christmas time? Surely that takes away this, what I did over here. And when your conscience starts excusing your sin on the basis of other good works, it is not acting the way it ought. It is not mirroring the courtroom of heaven. Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Your good works are tainted by sin. And your good works will not excuse your wicked deeds in the court of heaven. That's not how righteousness works. That's not how justice works. So when your conscience defends you and it shouldn't, it's showing that it's broken. And then finally, number six. 
The brokenness of conscience is evident when it fails to defend. That is, there are times when your conscience is right to defend you. We see this for Job. We see this often in Psalms of David. We see this in the life of Paul. People accused these men of sins they had not committed. They were innocent according to the law of God. They were innocent of the sins of which they were being accused. Their conscience was to be appealed to, to say, you know what? Let everybody else accuse you of doing wrong. You have a clean conscience before God. You know you've done right. But a conscience is malfunctioning when it begins to accuse you when you haven't done anything wrong. For example, maybe you lovingly spoke to someone in a firm manner. And you spoke to that person in a firm manner because you loved them and you needed them to take seriously what you're saying. Maybe you were admonishing them, but you were admonishing them because you care about them. You were simply speaking the truth in love. You were not overly harsh, but you were getting their attention. And yet in our hypersensitive culture, people get offended by everything People begin to say to you, mm, you shouldn't have spoken so loudly. You shouldn't have gotten in that person's face. And others, maybe you're joining in with that perspective and people around you are telling you that you shouldn't have done what you did. You followed Matthew 18. You spoke from a heart with an attitude of love. You were firm because of that love. You were firm in matters of truth. But nevertheless, as people begin to tell you, you know, you came on kind of strong, your own conscience begins to convict you. The law of God isn't convicting. It's your conscience, broken, joining in with the voices of others to falsely convict you. So this morning, this evening, we've seen all these ways that this good gift of the conscience can go haywire. All the ways that this good gift of the conscience can wreak havoc in your life. What can we do to fix this? First thing we need to do here is just, just, just see the terribleness of sin. Sin is the reason that our consciences are broken. Sin is what brought this state of affairs about. Our consciences are a glorious gift from God, and it's broken because of sin. There are so many ways in which our consciences can lead astray, hurt us, wrongly torment us. And it's all because we as a human race chose to rebel against God and his curse came upon us. Our broken, mis malfunctioning consciences are a consequence of sin. So can anything be done to restore our consciences to their proper function? Is there healing for the sleepy conscience that we talked about this morning? Or what can be done for the conscience that convicts when it ought to excuse and excuses when it ought to convict? And what can be done for that seared conscience? That person who seems like they have no conscience at all because their conscience doesn't raise any alarms when they commit even the most heinous of sins. Let's talk about the restoration of conscience. Number one, the restoration of conscience is a work of the Holy Spirit. Just as it is the Holy Spirit that renews your minds, Romans 12, 1. 
Just as it is the Holy Spirit that gives you a new heart and gives you new life in Christ, so part of the Spirit's work is to give you a renewed conscience. In fact, it's the Holy Spirit that must be at work in your conscience if you're to ever come to Christ at all. It's the Holy Spirit that comes and pricks your conscience, awakens the conscience, stirs up the conscience so that you feel the weight of the judgment of God upon you and you say, I need to run to Jesus. I need to flee to Him. And after salvation, after conversion, it is the the Spirit who continues to work in your life to make you pure and holy. And the Spirit works in your conscience. Therefore, if you see that there is something wrong with your conscience, if you begin to think, my conscience is not as sensitive as I wish it was. My conscience is not as, as, as it, it's, it's not tender anymore. I ought to be on my face before God because of the way I'm acting, and I don't feel it. I ought to be like David in Psalm 6. I ought to be on my bed with tears drowned. Dr- Drowning my pillow with with the tears from my eyes. And I don't feel that way anymore. I just sin and sin and I don't feel anything. You need to pray that the Spirit of God would be at work in your conscience. If your conscience is condemning you, though you've truly turned from your sin and you're resting in Jesus and you're trying to follow Him, you need to ask the Spirit to bring the good news of the gospel to bear on your conscience. Jesus is the Lord of the conscience, and by His Holy Spirit, He's the great physician of the conscience. He can make it function rightly. Number two, the restoration of the conscience is brought about through the Word of God. Have you ever noticed how the Word of God seems particularly written to speak to consciences? It has law to inform your conscience of right and wrong. It has historic accounts illustrating how God blesses the righteous and curses the wicked. The Bible has the Psalms that bring us into the inner thoughts and the emotions of others so that our consciences learn how to function rightly from folks like David in Psalm 6. The Bible is full of warning passages meant to stir up sleepy consciences and seared consciences. And the Bible is full of precious promises to soothe the troubled conscience with the message of peace in Jesus. Whatever your conscience needs to be healed, and it's probably different for a bunch of us in this room. Whatever your conscience needs to be healed, it is found in the pages of the Word of God. It is the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in response to your prayers that brings the healing and the restoration of conscience. Number three, the restoration of conscience is especially brought about through the preaching of the Word of God. Which means you're already doing something very important just by being here tonight. Over and over again in the pages of the Bible and in the experience of God's people throughout history, it has been the preaching of God's word that he used to care for consciences. 
Remember Peter's sermon at Pentecost and how the people were hearing Peter preach. And before Peter even got to the end of the sermon, the people were crying out, what must we do to be saved? The Holy Spirit, working through the preaching of Peter, made their consciences come alive so that they felt their sin and they were ripe for faith in Jesus Christ. Often we pray that during our preaching services, Christ will convict those who need convicting and comfort those who need comforting. That's the Spirit coming and applying the Word of God as it needs to be applied to each individual conscience in its own state. If the conscience that we're talking about, I'm sorry, it's the conscience that we're talking about when we pray that kind of prayer. We're asking God to convict those who are continuing in sin. We're asking God to comfort those who are blameless in the courts of heaven, whose sins are forgiven by Jesus, people who have truly repented and they're fighting that sin, but their their conscience still keeps coming against them saying guilty, guilty, guilty when God has declared them innocent. We're saying God calls the gospel to preach comfort to that soul. So related to this, let me make two points about how the gospel relates To our consciences. So number one. It is the gospel. The good news of Christ crucified for sinners. It is the gospel that brings us a clean conscience at conversion. What a joyful moment that is. What a joyful moment when the soul whose conscience has been ripped to shreds by conviction. Grasp hold of Christ for the first time. And finds true peace. For some people, that period of conviction before conversion is a long period of time. I don't know what it was for you. I mean, for some people, it happens fast, right? They walked into that Sunday service and they had no thoughts of Jesus. And they weren't feeling any conviction. And they were happy as could be. And suddenly the preacher started preaching and the spirit started working. And before they knew it, they were kind of gripping their chair. Their conscience was suddenly waking up and they were beginning to feel the power of conviction as the Spirit was showing them their guilt before God. And by the end of the service, that person is running to Jesus. And that was their period of conviction. It was 20 minutes. And they've come to Christ. There have been others who walked under the conviction of the Spirit for years before they came to Jesus. Sleepless nights. Times when they turned over here and turned over there to do anything to quiet the conscience. They didn't, they, they're in the car, they're going to turn on the radio. They don't want to be left quiet. They don't want to give conscience a moment to speak. For years they've been trying to push conscience down. Don't, I know I'm, don't, don't tell me anymore, don't tell me anymore. John Bunyan, who wrote Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, his own story of how he came to Christ. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he talks about how it took him months Before he came to have peace in his soul. It took him a long time. Before the spirit applied the gospel to his soul. So that his conscience began to quiet. He talks about how when he finally believed. when he, He said how he was walking in a field. Right? And it suddenly just came to him. Christ is my righteousness. That it's no longer about me and my good works. That my righteousness is in heaven. And because Christ is my righteousness, I am saved yesterday, today, and tomorrow. I cannot lose my salvation. I am blameless in the sight of God. Not because of anything in me, but because Christ is my righteousness. And he said after months and months and months, for the first time, it just clicked. And God suddenly called 
peace to come in his troubled mind. The gospel doesn't erase the fact that we're all sinners. And the the gospel doesn't cause our conscience to forget all our crimes. But the gospel does show our conscience that though we are great sinners, Christ is a greater Savior. And that his blood is sufficient to take away all our guilt. The cross is the answer to the guilty conscience. And then second, it is the gospel that brings us both new conviction and new cleansing throughout our Christian lives. What happened to you at conversion when you went from being convicted to having your conscience quieted by the gospel, that happens over and over and over and over again in the Christian life. Not that you suddenly think, oh no, I'm under the wrath of God again. No, once you've believed on Christ, there is no condemnation for you. Jesus bore it completely at the cross. But you know what? Your father loves you enough to discipline you. So throughout the Christian life, there are moments when your conscience convicts you by the gospel. You begin to think about Jesus. This should happen every time we take the Lord's Supper, right? We're taking the Lord's Supper and you're remembering, look how much my Jesus loves me. Look how he willingly had his body broken for me. Look how he bore the crown of thorns. Look how he bore the lashes and the the strips of skin ripped off his back. Look at how he bore the weight of the wrath of God for me. Look at how he loves me and look at how I've been living. And look at how I taught the so-and-so yesterday. And look at how I've been utterly negligent to that person that I should have been caring for. When we think about the love of Jesus for us in the gospel throughout the Christian life, it leads to greater conviction of sin. The more you come to understand the holiness of Jesus, the more you come to love the Jesus who loves you, the more it just shines more of a spotlight into the darkness that's still in you. So that day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, as you're growing in Christ, the spotlight is shining over here and over there on that part of your life, on this sin over here, on this part that needs to change. So yeah, in the Christian life, there's still lots of feeling guilty from time to time. But it should no longer be, I'm under the condemnation of God. It's, if I don't change, my father loves me enough, he's going to discipline me. My father loves me enough that he's going to discipline me. He's going to bring trials and tribulations to get these weeds out of my life if I don't get them out now. And so the gospel wakes us up to new conviction. Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. But not only does the gospel freshly convict us as we think about the love of Jesus for us, but the gospel also freshly cleanses us as we then run again to the blood of Jesus. Every Sunday morning, we have a little part of our worship service called the confession of sin and the assurance of pardon. We do it every Sunday morning. We read a verse from the Bible that's law. It should freshly convict us. And then we read a verse from the Bible that reminds us the blood of Jesus has cleansed us from all our sins. That's the Christian life. As we grow, fresh conviction, fresh cleansing. So that we love Jesus more and more every day. Number eight. Some implications of conscience. This is now now closing our brief study with four implications. What are we to take from our study of the conscience? Number one. We should speak to conscience in our evangelism. 
We should speak to conscience in our evangelism. When you're speaking to someone about Jesus, speak to their consciences. That is, help them see that the law of God is the absolute universal standard by which their lives will be judged. Help them to see that their sin is vile, that their sin is heinous. Show them the goodness of God. Show them how worthy He is of their love and of their allegiance. And show them how terrible it is that they would sin against such a good God as this. Appeal to their consciences. Their conscience is your ally when you witness. Do you understand that? Because God gave every person this conscience that has witnessed every sin in their life and also deep down knows the law of God, their conscience is your ally as you try and win them to Christ. Because when you start saying, when you start sharing with them about how you first came to understand that you're a sinner, their conscience, if it's working rightly, is going to be saying, that's true of you too. And as you share how you came under conviction and how you felt terrible because you had sinned against this wonderful God who made you, their conscience is going to be saying, you've also sinned against that God. And as you start talking about hell and how you didn't want to experience the wrath of God, their conscience is going to be saying, that's where you're headed if you don't turn. When you speak with people, appeal to their consciences, remind them of these things because they're their conscience will be echoing in their hearts and minds what you're saying. This is why Spurgeon said that evangelism should be 90% preaching the law and then 10% preaching the gospel. Until people have come to grips with the law of God, their consciences won't be ready for the gospel. No one cares about a cure if they don't know that they're sick. And the more they sense how dreadfully sick they are, the more grateful and precious the cure will be to them. Unless the sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet, as the Puritans used to say. So how do we do this well? How do we do this in our hypersensitive culture? I think we have to help people get there themselves. Ask them about what they think about someone who lies. Or someone who hates others. And then ask them if they're not guilty of the same things. Uh, Remember how the prophet Nathan came before King David? And he told David about this man in his kingdom who had committed this grave evil. And David replied, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And then Nathan pointed his finger at David and said, you are the man. As we're witnessing to people, we should ask them. We're we're such sinners. We're so quick to condemn everybody else. How do you think about people who lie? How do you think about people who hate? How do you think about people who who are greedy or or unkind? And people, oh, you are the man. I am the man. You are the man. We've all done it. Help them see their need for Christ by appealing to the law of God. Appeal to the conscience in our evangelism. Number two, we should speak to conscience in our discipline of our children. In our discipline of our children. What is the goal of disciplining our children? It's to lead them to Christ. It's to see them ultimately walking in godliness and in holiness. When our children are younger... 
We speak to their consciences by being clear with them about what is right and what is wrong and being consistent in our discipline. If we're inconsistent in our discipline, if we let our children get away with disobedience, then we're confusing their consciences, aren't we? We're confusing their consciences if we say this is wrong and then we don't discipline them when they do it. Our children will have a lower view of sin and they won't tremble as easily before God if they've been taught that some sins don't matter. The law of God will have a more powerful effect on their lives for good if its principles have been impressed upon them by their parents. As our children get older and they can think logically, we can begin to reason with them. We can ask them during times of discipline, did you know what you were doing was wrong? Did you you understand that when you got angry with that person or when you took his toy or when you treated him that way, did you understand that what you were doing was wrong? You did? And yet you did it anyway? What does that tell you about your heart? What does that tell you about who you are and why you need Christ? We can appeal to their consciences and every discipline opportunity becomes a gospel opportunity. We ask our children these questions to pierce their consciences, praying that the Spirit would use this to do them good and to direct them to Christ. Parents, grandparents in here, uncles, aunts, As you have opportunity to relate with children, remember this, appeal to their consciences. Number three, third implication. When examining our spiritual walk, we should always assess the state of our conscience. This is why I've asked you several times throughout this study, how goes it with your conscience? The state of your conscience is not decisive when it comes to your spiritual condition, but your conscience is a great indicator of how things are going between you and God. If your conscience is troubled and you're not experiencing peace before God, could it be that there is a sin that you're refusing to turn from? Could it be that you've professed to follow Christ and He's commanding you to be rid of something in your life or to, get, or to practice some behavior and you're refusing to follow Him? Then maybe that's why your conscience is driving you crazy because you're living in sin and you need to turn from it. Don't you want to be like the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 who said, I am sure that I have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Can you say tonight, I am sure that I have a clear conscience. Can you say that honestly? Before God. Before us. Why continue to walk around troubled? Let go of that sin. Flee from that sin. Be done with it once and for all. Has your conscience become sleepy? Or God forbid, has it become seared? And don't wait another minute. Fall on your face and ask God to rescue your conscience. Ask for His Word that, that, that is like a piercing sword to cut into your conscience, to tear it, to, to rip it, to cause it to cry out again. You need your conscience doing its job. Without it, you're headed down a path of destruction. 
A path where you'll do evil and feel nothing. A path where you may think all is well with you when in fact God's wrath stands against you. How many there are who think they're Christians. They think they're Christians because their conscience no longer accuses them when in fact the peace that they found is not a gospel-given peace but the peace of having been given over to their own destruction. They walked in sin for so long That God just gave them over to it. It's a terrible state, church. You don't want to be in that state. If you are ever continuing in known sin. And your conscience has left you alone. Your conscience is no longer crying out. You're sinning and sinning. Your conscience doesn't care. You need to use every means available to you. Prayer, the word of God, the preaching of the word of God, Christian friends. And you don't stop fighting until your conscience wakes up. Because there is no salvation for those who do not repent. And there is no such thing as repentance with a sleepy conscience. Few things have the power to awaken our consciences like faithful preaching on the most important Christian truths. Sermonaudio.com Go listen to Pastor Albert Martin's sermons preached years ago on the doctrine of hell. Clearly that's not going to be pleasant. It will wake up your conscience. It will wake up your sleepy conscience. I think it's still out there. And our little, uh, little you know, we have our library over here. We have some featured books out here. Patrick Leahy, British guy. He wrote a little book. You can read it in an hour. It's called, Is It Nothing to You? Talking about the cross. Some years ago, I read that little book and it tore me up. Right? Asking, look at the cross. Look at Jesus. Look, and he just walks through passage after passage. Do you see what Jesus did for you? Is this nothing to you? You have resources to help you awaken your conscience. Use them. Immerse yourself in Christian truth. Don't stop wrestling with God in prayer until He has rescued you and until He has awakened your conscience. And then fourth, last implication. And this is the whole reason we preach this little three-sermon series on the conscience. It's because we're getting ready to see this big time in Romans 14. And it was important that we talk about the conscience before we get to Romans 14, which is all about how we treat one another. Here it is. We should be careful never to pressure any person to violate their conscience. We should be careful never to pressure any person to violate their conscience. We'll see this big time in Romans 14. If someone is convinced in their own conscience... That doing something is a sin. Pressuring them to do that thing is pressuring them to do evil. So I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Maybe you and I would agree that playing hand and foot or rummy or go fish or rook or cadasta or whatever it is, right? Playing card games. Maybe you and I would agree that that's not a sin. But here's this Christian who is convinced in their conscience that playing cards is a sin. If you pressure that person to come play cards with you, you're pressuring them to sin. You're pressuring them to violate their own conscience. Playing cards isn't a sin, but violating your conscience is. 
doing what you think is evil is sin. If a person is convinced in their conscience that listening to secular music is wrong, or if they've made a commitment not to eat out on a Sunday, or if they've come to believe that going to a restaurant that serves alcohol is a sin, don't pressure them to do those things. Even if that's not where you are, even if you disagree completely with their position, don't pressure them to violate their conscience. Part of loving your brother or your sister in Christ is loving them as they are, where they are on their spiritual journey, never asking them to violate their conscience before God. We can talk about those issues. And perhaps their conscience can be better informed. Or maybe our consciences need to be better informed by them. We can have those conversations. But we must never ask someone to violate their conscience. As Martin Luther said, to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. So let us praise God for the gift of our conscience. Let us work to see our consciences further restored. And through faith in Jesus, let us know the joy and the peace of a clean conscience before God. Amen? Amen. How much time we got for questions? Ten minutes. All right, we've had three sermons on the conscience. Any any?